you have a Bible and would like to, you may turn to Matthew chapter 1. I think it is appropriate this time of year. Um, the name of, since the name of Jesus and his birth is recalled by many all over the world, it's probably good for us to recall it ourselves. And if it's, if it's not good for us, well, it, it is good for us. But it's not commanded of me. But I think it's a wise thing. So Matthew chapter 1 has this birth narrative of our Lord in verses 18 through 25 is what I'm going to be reading in your hearing, and then we'll consider this passage and one more in the second hour. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for, which, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Very interesting little word there, of, a preposition, is caused by, is the fruit of the power or work of the Spirit upon her and in her. Verse 21, she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's a wonderful line. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, for us in 2022, especially if you are a, a professing Christian, um, it is easy, I think, not to be astounded by something. And that is, this record that I just read is recording history a little over 2,000 years ago that affects us every single day of our life, but especially on the first day of every week because of the resurrection, and then that once-a-year cultural thing that we call Christmas. The birth of one Jewish baby over 2,000 years ago is still the object of remembrance after such a long time. All over the world, in various time zones. I don't think that will be the case for any of us. Matter of fact, not long after you die, you're pretty much forgotten, right? Except your immediate family and loved ones. But here we have a strange baby from 2,000 years ago that we have come to know as our Savior. 
So it's astounding that all over the world people are remembering the birth of this one. Um, it should be astounding as well to re- recall the fact that the reason why Christians meet on Sunday all over the world for public worship is because he did not remain a babe in the crib, right? He actually grew in wisdom and stature among men. He suffered. He died. He was buried. He was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He sits majestically in the posture of enthronement now and rules, and he's coming again. He was raised from the dead on the third day, and I've said this before, the ripple effects of the third of, of the third third day resurrection of the Son of God, which was on the first day of the week, is with us every week. I mean, you don't get up on Sunday and go, wow, look at the ripple effect of the resurrection of the Son of God. Maybe you should, though. And what does the ripple effect cause most Christians to do on the first day of the week? Go to church. But before his resurrection was what we call his incarnation. That's a technical term. Some of you have that Webster's Dictionary, the good one, I mean. The 1828, maybe some of you were around when it first came out. But if you read the word incarnation in that Webster's Dictionary, the old one, here's what it says. The act of assuming flesh or of taking a human body and the nature of man as the incarnation of the Son of God. That's the old website. That's a good definition. The act of assuming, taking to himself flesh. Now, when we come into being, we come into being with body, soul at the same time. But here we have one who assumes flesh, body, and soul to himself. That assumes some sort of pre-existence by this one we call the incarnate Son of God. He is God, the Son, who takes human nature to himself. Uh, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. You say, well, would tease out the mechanics of the assumption of flesh by the incarnate son, by, by the Son of God. Explain it all. I can explain what, insofar as Scripture uh, reveals to us, but all the mechanics are beyond our ability to understand. Matter of fact, we don't even have to understand all the mechanics of God becoming man, and we can be saved. As long as we say, whatever that is, I believe it. And the more we get information on it and start connecting dots and all that stuff, our faith gets confirmed. So we have this passage we've looked at. I know from being on Twitter that a lot of preachers that I uh, would consider good and faithful ones are preaching from this passage in Matthew chapter 1, and there's good reason for it. But notice in our text, uh, in Matthew 1.23, just listen to these words. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Now that comes right after verse 22. 
So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying. So the Lord spoke through a prophet. It ends up being Isaiah. And that which the Lord spoke through the prophet Isaiah way back then is now being fulfilled. So this is Matthew, the disciple of our Lord, who is contemplating recent events. And as he contemplates the recent event of the incarnation, he's doing it in light of what the Lord said through the prophet. Okay, so the the new thing on the earth's scene is this one called Jesus. The old thing is the Old Testament promising this one called Jesus. Jesus. The book of Isaiah is in the Old Testament. Isaiah was a prophet of God, which means he spoke for God. He spoke on behalf of God to men. Now, it's no small matter that the New Testament begins by informing us that the Old Testament promises have been fulfilled in what we call the incarnation of our Lord. That should be very striking to us and very encouraging. Prophets, hundreds and sometimes thousands of years before the coming of Christ, said the Christ would come. The Christ has come. The Christ raises up new prophets called apostles. And they say, hey, by the way, what the prophet said was going to happen, happened in Jesus. This is a big deal. God has sworn his oath. God has made a promise. And God has fulfilled this promise. That which the Old Testament promised, God has fulfilled in our Lord. So let's look at some general observations of our passage. Our passage, if you are familiar at all with a new with the Old Testament and the New Testament, is laced with Old Testament concepts and themes. Son of David, a child coming by a virgin. If you know the Old Testament, you know that's familiar language. If you don't know the Old Testament, you should get to know it. And if you say it's so big, it's hard to get to know, you can always buy. There's one more copy of that little book that chases uh, traces the promise of the of a Messiah in the Old Testament's major events. It'll help you really, and then you'll come and read the New Testament and see these things. So we have uh, Old Testament themes, terms, phrases, concepts being picked up by our passage. Uh, son of David, a child by a virgin, a savior of sinners. Even the name Jesus itself has Old Testament roots. In Hebrew, Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus means the Lord saves. You remember there was Moses, who takes the people by the power of God, uh, out of Egyptian bondage and then dies right before crossing the Jordan into the eternal state, I mean the promised land. Um, you know the statement, older people say it. He crossed the Jordan. He died and went to heaven, viewing the promised land of ancient Israel as a type of something better. Well, Joshua is the one that is raised up after Moses, 
and he takes the people into the promised land. He's a key figure in the Old Testament. He conquered many of her enemies, Israel's enemies. He was the leader of God's people just after Moses. And Moses, remember, didn't lead him into the promised land because Moses sinned. and God took privilege from him because of it. But Joshua is an interesting figure. Jesus is the greater Joshua, is he not? Joshua was a type of a greater Joshua. Who's the greater Joshua? Our Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's why he's named that. He's taking the people of God ultimately to Emmanuel's land, to glory, to the eternal state, to the new heavens and the new earth. He's he's the agent through whom God will bring many sons to glory. But in order to bring many sons to glory, to get to that state, he comes in a womb. He assumes flesh, which I think is a singular term for the entirety of human nature, what it means to be man or humanity, body, soul. The words of Isaiah especially are very prominent in Matthew 1, 18 through 23, which caused a hymn writer, to say this. Isaiah hath foretold it in words of promise sure and Mary's arms enfold it, a virgin meek and pure. Well, let's look at some of that, some of the Isianic influence on Matthew's recounting of the incarnation. Verse 23 is full of Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Now, these are Matthew's words right after he he wrote these. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled. This is verse 22, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying. Now, the prophet here refers to Isaiah. In Matthew 1.23, Matthew references aspects of three Isianic texts. That's a technical word for texts in Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah 7.14, Isaiah 8.10, Isaiah 9.6. Now, sometimes, if you've read the New Testament, you know that the Old Testament's cited or referenced, but not always verbatim, that means word for word, which is... Okay, they can do that. We do that too. You remember where it said, and then we loosely quote something, and nobody says to you, oh, that's an abomination. You didn't quote it word for word. Okay, you're referencing something without quoting it word for word. It's okay. And as good readers of Scripture, when we see this kind of language, especially all in one verse here, it should trigger our minds. This is very important. Not only... Should verse 23 trigger our mind? But verse 22 should trigger us to be triggered when we read verse 23. Because he says in verse 22, All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken, notice, by the Lord through the agency of the prophet Isaiah, saying, So here's Isaiah 7.14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. 
Okay? Here's, <coughs> here's 8.10, Isaiah 8.10. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak the word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. That's an obscure verse. God is with us. Emmanuel, God with us. And then Isaiah 9.6, probably know this one. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now again, Note well Matthew's words in verse 22. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. So this event, (coughs) excuse me, in the first century, surrounding Jesus, Mary, Joseph, the angels, and the rest of the parties and persons that witnessed this, All this takes place because the Lord had already spoken through a prophet that it would take place, and the Lord himself is causing it to take place. Now, we make promises that we cannot cause to come to be. We cross our fingers. We hope to do X, Y, or Z. But circumstances can thwart our efforts and often do thwart our efforts, but not so with the Lord. The Lord makes a promise, nothing, if he raises his hand, if he is in the providential posture of executing divine power that ends up changing and altering things on the earth, nobody can stop him. There's that text in Daniel, I think it says, you know, when God is going to act, who can basically slap his hand and say, get out of here, you can't do this. So God says, I'm going to do this, and then God does it, he says it through Isaiah, and then he does it through the incarnation, and then he raises up Matthew, and Matthew says, he did it. He said he was going to do it, and he did it, and I'm telling you, he did it. Now, some people in our day want to describe the relationship between the Old and New Testaments as the New Testament reinterpreting the Old. I think there's a better way to do it. Because reinterpreting, to me, means it's you interpret it one way, and then you reinterpret it, make it say something it originally did not intend or mean. That gives the impression that the coming of our Lord creates new meanings for old texts, right? Oh, Isaiah really didn't mean that, but I'm going to sneak this one in. We don't want to read the New Testament like that. I think that's unnecessary to do. By the way, some of these texts, and you've probably read the New Testament to know enough, of Every single citation of the Old Testament is not necessarily the same. Sometimes it's verbatim, word for word. Sometimes it's not. Uh, uh, sometimes it's just an illusion by using a word or a phrase. Sometimes it's a full sentence. 
And it's easy to get confused. What's going on here? Well, there's one school of thought that says this. Well, Jesus and the apostles were unique. So they kind of went back there and took rabbits out of their hat and justified the messianic mission based on weird texts. They can do that, but we can't. And it's like, that doesn't sound right. I think it's wrong. It's very scholarly. It's in the you know ivory towers. That makes it sound like they did their exegesis wrong. They got the right doctrine, the incarnation of the Son of God, from the wrong texts. But it was Jesus and the apostles, so. Well, if they got the right doctrine, I think they got it from the right texts. This is not a reinterpretation of, you know, God had a plan, curses foiled again. God had a plan, curses foiled again. God had a plan, curses foiled again. This is an interpretation of God's plan from way back in Genesis 3.15. The, the, the seed of the woman shall crush the head of the serpent. Some of these Isianic texts actually have taproots way back in the early chapters of the book of Genesis. So this isn't a reinterpretation of the Old Testament. This is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. Way different. Matthew 123 cites aspects of those three Isaiah texts that we read before. It does so right after Matthew says, All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying... So the all this was done or took place refers us back to the words of an angel of the Lord revealed to Joseph. In verses 20 and 21, we read these. But while he thought about these things, Joseph, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, Old Testament language here. Do not be afraid to take to you, Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So it's immediately after the words of the angel that Matthew uses what some call this Fulfillment formula. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying. So this teaches us that Matthew viewed the event of the incarnation not as a reinterpretation of the Old Testament, but as a fulfillment of what God had already revealed through the prophet. Here the prophet Isaiah So here is Matthew reflecting upon what took place with reference to the infant Jesus, and he interprets it in light of what the Lord already said through the prophet Isaiah. I think I've illustrated this before. Um, When Jesus comes on the scene, it's not like Jesus and the apostles are going, wow, This is something brand new. we got to change the meaning of old texts. Instead, they're they're interpreting Jesus through the texts that already existed. They're, they're, They're looking at and hearing 
excuse me, I'm not sick. They're watching, they're listening, and they're connecting dots. But they're not casting new meanings on old texts. They're looking at Jesus through the texts. And they're saying, he's here. In the, you remember what Paul ends up saying, in the fullness of time, if there's anything, it was a God thing, it was the incarnation. God sent forth his son. Now Paul announces that in Galatians 4, 4, and 5. Born of a woman, born under the law in order that he might redeem, that we might become sons, that we might cry, Abba, Father. You know that passage. Paul announces that in such a way as like a drum roll, please, crescendo. God, in the fullness of time, did what God had promised he would do before the fullness of time. It's not a new thing. It's the old thing that he said he was going to do. And now he has done it. Now, in light of this consideration of our passage, what can we say about the relationship between the Old and New Testaments? Because here we have a New Testament writer, Matthew 1, 18 to 25, referencing Old Testament texts, at least three Isaiah texts, the ones I mentioned, and probably 2 Samuel 7, uh, son of David, and other passages are at least echoed by our passage. So what can we say about the relationship between the Old and New Testament? Now, if you're like me, you cut your teeth on a, a, a teaching that says God tried to bless man one way, it didn't work. God tried to bless man another way, it didn't work. God tried to bless man another way, it didn't work. And now God's trying to bless man through Jesus. It's the new way. It's a way of grace. It was law, it was government, it was prompt, uh, it was whatever. But now it's faith. You see what that does to the Bible? disunifies it. It makes it like two separate or five separate tries. Instead, we ought to view it as one divine promise with its corresponding divine fulfillment. What's the... That's two, okay? So what's the one divine promise? The Old Testament. What's the one divine fulfillment, New Testament? I don't even like that. Because still, it's two books, right? So how about if we go one divine promise, hyphen. One divine fulfillment, I like that better. Or slash or something, backslash. It's promise and fulfillment. It's he's coming, he's he's come. What the Old Testament then promised, the New Testament assures us, is being and will be fulfilled through what our Lord Jesus Christ does. Matthew does not reinterpret the Old Testament in light of Christ. He interprets Christ in light of the Old Testament. 
There's a big difference there, right? He interprets Christ in light of the Old Testament. I think our Lord understood himself in light of the Old Testament as well. If you uh, would believe Moses, you'd believe in me, for he wrote about the United States of America. He wrote about Christ. And you remember Jesus scolds the religious leader of the day for having the Old Testament and not concluding from it that this is its fulfillment. That this is the this is the scope, the target, the end toward which that whole big book we call the Hebrew Scriptures or Old Testament was aiming toward and for. If you read the Old Testament, it's open-ended and you're trying to put it all together, you're going, there's some things promised here that haven't come about yet. Drum roll, please, because once Jesus comes on the scene and interprets himself in light of the Old Testament and teaches his disciples to do the same, you know what happens? Christianity. And the, the, the gospel, the good news, that God promised to do something and has done it, then it goes all over the world. Ripple effect, here we are. So, fascinating passage here in Matthew chapter 1. There are many other fascinating passages we can go to, but we're not. We're going to have one contemplation before our break, though. And here it is. The biblical doctrine of the incarnation reveals to us that God is providentially active in this world and it manifests the truthfulness of the written word of God. Okay, the biblical doctrine of the incarnation. The Bible's teaching on the assumption of flesh by the Son of God reveals to us that God is providentially active in this world. God didn't simply make the world. God preserves the entirety of the made creation. Every pulsation of our heart is due to his divine goodness. Okay, So God is active in the world in a general sense providentially, but God is in a peculiar way active in the world as well. And in this peculiar way, he makes promises... He records them, and then he makes good on them. In the very obscure early chapters of the book of Genesis, when, you know, the creation of uh, Adam and Eve and, and the fall into sin, the curse is pronounced, and that curse upon the serpent is a weird one. The seed of the woman shall crush the head of the serpent. You have this royal-sounding seed coming from a woman who's going to be bruised by the serpent, but who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And then you have royal family and royal seed among family developed in the book of Genesis, and you can see it in other books uh, that Moses wrote as well. But certainly, by the time you get to the monarchy, you have this line of kings, and that there's that one David that's given a promise and says that a son or seed of David shall have the throne of David forever. And it's in the prophets as well. And all these differing themes of this one royal son coming from some sort of royal family who's going to have scepter and rule in Judah. All these 
unfulfilled promises are found in the Old Testament begging fulfillment. So God is active in history, making promises through prophets, writing the promises down, preserving the promises in the written word of God, and then making good on the promises, and then on top of that, raising up apostles to say, I told you, I, I made a promise, and I've made good on my promise. So this tells us God is active in the affairs of this world. And it manifests the truthfulness of the written word of God. I said this before. We can make a lot of promises. The spouses are, the wives are probably going, he sure can. And factors outside of our control can inhibit us from making good on our promises. But we're just dust. We're creatures. We're, you know, we're supposed to, the mind of man plans his way. We're supposed to plan ahead. We're supposed to make promises and all those things. But we don't have the power to ensure that our promises will be fulfillments at some point. We can cross our fingers, hope to die, all those kind of things. Isn't that a weird statement? I don't know where that came from. Hope to die. You really hope to die? Uh, you're going to die, but like you're hoping to die? Uh, we make promises, but we can't ensure fulfillments. And you know what else is very interesting about God's promises? They're sometimes very ironic, like they're cast in a mode you would not think would be appropriate. Like, even the first promise of the Messiah in Genesis 3.15, there's irony there. The seed of the woman shall crush the head of the serpent. So, if Adam was the head, why are you using the woman? Use the man. The Bible's patriarchal. The devil went after Eve first, right? And then Adam, she was first deceived and then Adam took. And and God's going to get the devil through the woman. You got the head through the woman. I'm going to get you through the woman. And even with that, there's more irony. You know, because you remember some of the Jews, many of them in the first century, especially in the Gospel of John, you can see it. Um, they expected, they didn't expect Jesus as, as the Messiah. They expected a Messiah, but not a humble one. They expected a warrior that was going to slaughter all their enemies. They missed the sufferings part of the Old Testament. Sufferings and glory. You've heard that? It's like six times, I think, in the New Testament. That twofold motif of the work of Christ, sufferings and glory, is connected with, guess what? The old book. The Old Testament predicted the sufferings and the third day resurrection of the incarnate Son of God. God makes a promise that in the fullness of time, God makes good on his promise. 
unlike us, we should still promise. Watch what you promise. I promise somehow the closet will be fixed. And I'm happy my son-in-law is here for a week. But even with that, doesn't mean he's going to do it, right? Or he does it right. God, when he makes promises in his own good time, fulfills them. And God, long ago, spoke through the prophets to our fathers. In these last days has spoken to us by his son. And we are to listen to his son. Our only hope is to have a savior. And the only savior, the only mediator between God and man is the man, Christ Jesus, who elsewhere in the New Testament we're told he is the word who was with God and who was God and who made all things and became Flesh. There's that weird, uniquely Christian doctrine right there, the incarnation. The Word who was with God, who was God, who is God. Not the Father, He's the Son. The Word, there's that became flesh. Never ceasing to be the Word. Wordness is divinity. Divinity... I, the Lord, do not change. Creature is taken by the Son of God. This divine person assumes a human nature. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. Why the incarnation is the... That's the big question. Why? Okay, why? I get it. The Bible teaches it. It was promised in the Old, fulfilled by Christ, and recorded for us in the New Testament. Why in the world would God the Son assume human flesh? Uh, maybe to fix it? Maybe we're in trouble? Maybe we got problems we can't fix ourselves? Maybe our plight is so desperate the incarnation is the only way for God to maintain his justice and you know all that. And yet, to win the day over the devil, there's another irony there. This babe in the womb ends up destroyed. The Son of God was revealed in order to destroy the works of the devil. So I say that this doctrine helps us to realize something that should be very comforting to us. God makes promises, and God fulfills them when he wants to. God has promised through the gospel that if you acknowledge your sins and you trust Christ and Christ alone to be your guilt offering, your sins get punished in him, and your righteousness, your right standing before God by virtue of obedience to the law, you get both of those from, from, the, from the promised gospel. Forgiveness of all of our sins and a righteous standing with God by virtue of the obedience of he who was born of a woman, born under the law, born of a woman, a 
assumed our nature, born under the law, assumed our duties in order that he might redeem, assumed our liabilities to bring us to God. You know, the gospel is scandalous to to a lot of people. Why? Because, again, it's irony. Because we think the better the Christian I am, the more chance I have to go to heaven. It's like, you need to start over. You don't get to heaven based on your efforts. You get to heaven based on the efforts of another. And that's what we need for our sin-sick souls. The good news of the gospel. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for making promises. We thank you for recording promises. We thank you for fulfilling fulfilling promises. And we thank you for recording the fact that you have been good on your word. No more does this um, relate to us than the promise of this one son of David, this son of the virgin, this lion of the tribe of Judah, this branch of the Lord, Jehovah our righteousness, the incarnate one, the son, the word become flesh. Please help us to love him, to believe upon him, to serve him, Better, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.